I feel like if I don't get my butt in gear and get on that stage and do my songs, then I should quit the business. Really? Yeah. When did you start to feel that? Yesterday. Well, hello, hello, everybody. It is the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast, and uh, I am your usual and so far only host, Sean. But hey, thank you for downloading this episode, even though you had no idea what it was going to be about. And I just realized, wow, I had a really, really crunch schedule with Pac-Man Collection, and I didn't really have enough time to research a new game for this particular episode, because if I did, I would be so burnt out. So guess what? This is going to be another burnout episode. And uh, I wasn't sure what to do about that. I just knew that I wanted to still have an episode out on time, but I also didn't want to have to go through all the stress of having to play a game that I'm maybe not necessarily familiar with, learning about the background, doing all the research. And uh, the thing is, as you're listening to this, I am somewhere in California far from my Chicago home. My wife and I are on vacation. We planned a really amazing trip, spending a couple of days in San Diego at Ocean Beach. We went there for the first time last year, and we both really loved it, especially my wife. She is just absolutely in love with it. And then we're going to take a few days to travel up the California coast and stop in a few places, spend a couple of overnights here and there, do some exploring up the coast. Catalina Island. We're going to stop at Huntington Beach, aka Surf City, USA. Hopefully, have some lunch at Paradise Cove, which we did a couple of years ago in uh, Malibu. Paradise Cove is awesome. And uh, TV shows and movies like to film beach scenes at Paradise Cove. Chances are you've seen it on the big screen or little screen somewhere if you've watched American TV shows or movies. But Basically, our trip is going to end in San Francisco at Ocean Beach in San Francisco. So it's Ocean Beach to Ocean Beach. I love Ocean Beach, San Francisco so much. It's uh, it's just absolutely gorgeous up there. It's foggy. It's not swimmable because it's usually too cold. And the water is usually too dangerous to do more than just put your toes in the very, very tippy top of it. But there's just something really, really... I I always say that Ocean Beach, San Francisco is one reason I will never be an atheist. I I truly believe that you go to Ocean Beach, San Francisco, and uh, if you're an atheist, you'll be a believer in something by the time you leave. But I love it up there. There's a great hiking trail up there. It's just so amazing there. You, You forget you're in a major city while you're there. Not that I don't like major cities. I live in a major city. I am a city slicker. I I can't deal with suburbs and rural parts of uh, anything. I need to be in the city. But I'm thinking, what am I going to do for this burnout? I could probably talk about the Beatles because, well, I like to talk about things that are very important to me. And to me, the Beatles are the end-all, be-all. I mean, I've been a Beatles fan for Wow, 31 years now, 31 years of my 43-year existence. But no, everybody talks about the Beatles. In fact, there is even a podcast called Screw It, We're Just Going to Talk About the Beatles, which would pretty much have been my attitude. But I'm thinking, hmm, going to California, if this weren't a burnout episode, this would be episode 42. So 42, 42. Let me see now. California, 42. 1942. 
Ooh, I hope somebody makes a 1942 uh, homebrew for the 70. Uh, anyway, sorry. Sorry to get on topic on this off topic episode. <laughs> But 1942, you know who was born in 1942? Paul McCartney of the Beatles. Yeah, but let's switch gears. Who else was born in 1942? Ah, actually, Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys and Al Jardine from the Beach Boys. They were born in 1942. Oh, and the Beach Boys are all about California. So I figure something that's very important to me is the music of Brian Wilson and his group, the beach boys. Well, let's face it for the most part, Brian Wilson was the beach boys, but you get, you get my drift. I'm sure. So, uh, not my favorite group, not my favorite music. Again, that's the Beatles, but beach boys, as you might remember from the episode I put out around Christmas time, very important to my life. And I just kind of want to share with you, like how it got to be such a big part of my life. But before we get into uh, anything further, I'd like to help out a couple of friends here. Hey, Atari fans. This is Michael, one of the hosts of the Atari XEGS Cart by Cart podcast. Join Bill, David, Kieran, and myself as we review cartridge-based games for the Atari's last answer, the 8-bit gaming system, as well as delve deep into their history. Kieran will also introduce everyone to the UK's budget games. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or from our website at xegs8bit.com. That's xegs, the number 8, bit.com. Are you Brian Wilson? Yes, I am. Good afternoon, Mr. Wilson. We're from the Highway Patrol, Surf Squad. Hello. Uh, Brian, uh, we have a citation here for you, sir, under Section 936A of the California Catch-A-Wave Statute. Uh, Brian, you're in violation of Paragraph 12, failing to surf, neglecting to use a state beach for surfing purposes, and otherwise avoiding surfboards, surfing, and surf. Surfing? I don't want to go surfing. Now look, you guys, I'm not going. You get your hair wet, you get sand in your shoes. Okay, I'm not going. Come on, Brian. Let's go surfing now. Everybody's learning how. Come, Come on, on a safari, safari with us. On my way to sunny California. On my way to spend sunny day. Well, I don't know where I'm going with this, so maybe I should just start when I first heard the Beach Boys, and I remember it well. I was a little kid. I was maybe three or four years old, and uh, my dad used to play this album that he had. It was called uh, I Remember Hank Williams, and it was by Glenn Campbell. I think it was from 1974-ish, maybe 73. He played that thing all the time. I remember hearing the gentle voice of Glenn Campbell singing I Would Never Be Ashamed of You and Your Cheating Heart and other Hank Williams classics. I remember the label, too, was uh, very distinctive for a three- or four-year-old to remember. Uh, It was kind of a dark orange, almost red label, and it had the word capital, because it was Capital Records. It was on the bottom of the label in gold type, pretty large gold type. And I kind of refer to that as a tomato soup label, because it kind of reminds me of uh, of, uh, (laughs) Campbell's, of all things, tomato soup. And yeah, my dad played that all the time, all the time. I remember one day when uh, it was pretty regular that uh, if both my parents had to work, because my dad worked full-time, my mother worked, I think, part-time, uh, they would drop me off at the next-door neighbor's house till the afternoon. So one day I was over there, and Mrs. Marillette said, I think I want to listen to some music. So she pulled out a record, and it had the tomato soup label, as it were. So, of course, naturally, because I'm three or four years old, I don't know anything. I'm thinking, oh, okay, she's got that Glenn Campbell record that Dad has. So she puts it on, 
And the first thing I heard was not Glenn Campbell singing a Hank Williams song. I heard this voice that I, th- I found kind of shrill and annoying, and it just got on my nerves. Round, round, get around, I get around, yeah, get around, round, round, And I, I was like, oh, God. And I hated it. I absolutely hated it. And to this day, I can't stand the song, I Get Around. I don't remember anything else from that record or what record it might have been. Theoretically, it could have been the Beach Boys All Summer Long album because I Get Around is the first song on it. But most likely, it was actually Endless Summer, which was a two-record set that was a massive hit. It was a kind of sort of best-of compilation, and it was a smash hit that came out in 1974. And any capital album that came out that was pressed in the set in the mid 70s would have had that tomato soup label and uh, i know that endless summer side three song number one as i get around so it was probably endless summer that uh, my neighbor pulled out and uh, yeah that thing sold amazingly yeah go to any used record store you will see it there everybody except my parents had it but i do remember later on like probably when I was much more old enough to remember things more clearly, I remember seeing a commercial for some kind of a Beach Boys compilation or possibly a various artist compilation, and it had fun, fun, fun. That song didn't sound like fun at all. I think they just used a really terrible mix of the song. I remember it was drenched in reverb, but the real song isn't. And I don't know, I just didn't like it. But later on, I think I was in sixth grade, I heard that song again in my music class when we were all assigned to do short, like five-minute oral reports on rock groups of, of all things. And one of my classmates chose the Beach Boys and used Fun, Fun, Fun as kind of the example song. And it sounded a lot better than I remembered. So I was like, okay, this is all right. But how did I get into actually really liking the Beach Boys? Well, it's a bit of a story of itself because when I was a preteen in in the 80s, I keep talking about how my video gaming really started in the early 80s. So I was like between seven and nine years old when all the really good stuff was coming out. And I used to keep up with all the modern music that was out there. I loved Michael Jackson. I'd listen to Culture Club. Uh, what else? Talk. I still have a copy of After Eight by Taco in my record collection, and I'm proud of it. Boy, howdy. I had Stay Hungry by Twisted Sister. Actually, it's still in my record collection, and I'm never getting rid of it. So I used to listen to all that stuff. My brother, who's 10 years older, he was into a little bit more adult kind of stuff like Van Halen, Kiss, Yes, Asia, Rush, that kind of thing. But uh, that wasn't for me. I, I really didn't like that stuff all that much. I was, I'm, Actually, I did like 70s Kiss. I loved 70s Kiss. Uh, Van Halen was okay. But Yes, Asia, I, I did not like them. <laughs> I wasn't into swirly keyboard solos. But uh, anyway, basically what was going on was like probably around 1985, though. Things that were coming out in modern music that were targeted to my demographic, they just didn't interest me anymore. They all sounded stale, and this is pretty much everything was 100% synthesizer and uh, hexagon-shaped electronic drums. Remember those god-awful things? I couldn't stand that. Yeah, I know. People listening to this are like, hey, what's wrong with that stuff? Yeah, I didn't like it. It just sounded boring to me. So I was kind of in a haze of not keeping up with modern music. And I remember in 1986, when the Monkees became a thing again, they had their 20-year reunion tour. There was a commercial that aired on TV for this Monkees album on Silver Eagle Records. 
And I liked the clips of the music that I heard. I was like, this is really cool, actually. I think I like this. So I would watch the TV show, and I would stick a tape recorder up to the TV speaker so I could record the songs that were in the episodes and listen to them back. And I went to the library. I got four Monkees albums, and for about a year or two, I went all out Monkees. At least the stuff from before they kind of started falling apart, like before Peter left the group. Well, anyway, let's not get into that right now. But I got kind of tired of just listening to the monkeys all the time. So I asked myself, what am I going to do? I'm getting kind of tired listening to these guys. Well, it seems to me that they're a parody of the Beatles, and they highly credit the Beatles for basically their existence. Let me try the Beatles. So I went to the library again, got some Beatles records, and just absolutely fell in love with Beatles music. And it's still my favorite music to this day. So for about two years, I absorbed any Beatles I could get my hands on. I'm talking actual Beatles. I'm not talking post-breakup Beatles like John Lennon solo or Wings or anything like that. I'm talking just Beatles. And in those two years, I realized that the Beatles had a pretty small catalog, really. So I had heard everything that I could really hear. I hadn't yet discovered bootlegs. So I had to expand my musical horizons again. And I'm thinking, hmm, what do I do now? I, I can't just go back and forth between the Beatles and the Monkees because I grew tired of them pretty quickly, so I need more music to listen to. Hmm, you know, I realize I don't really change the radio station if they play a Beach Boys song, unless it's I Get Around, so let me try the Beach Boys. So I went to the library again, this was 1989 by the way, and I got four Beach Boys albums. I remember the names of two of them. A third one was, I think, a European 20-song compilation. I remember it had a, it had the song Breakaway on it, but I don't remember anything else, but I didn't really listen to it that much. I don't remember what the fourth one was, but I remember the other two were Sunshine Dream, which was a two-record set that came out, I think, in 1981 or 1982, and it was the second follow-up to Endless Summer. The first follow-up to Endless Summer was Spirit of America which also was a massive hit. It didn't go to number one like Endless Summer did, but it was still a huge hit. Sunshine Dream, not so much. But I had Sunshine Dream, and that covered, I think, 1965 to 1967. And Best of the Beach Boys Volume 2. So the first that I played was Best of the Beach Boys Volume 2. And in retrospect, I must have played Side 2 first. And I'll tell you why in a sec. But I dropped the needle... And the first song that I heard was Don't Worry Baby, and I wasn't familiar with that song. And if you're not familiar with that song, well, it starts off with a couple of drum beats, and then there's this explosion of vocal harmonies that just knocked me on my butt. I will never forget that. Oh my god. I was sucked in big time by those vocal harmonies. I've, I've always loved vocal harmony, but that just totally knocked me out, and I'll never forget that. And by the way, the reason that I realize that it's probably side two that I played is because I think side two is what has Don't Worry Baby on it. But that was it. I was hooked from that moment. I mean, I knew a little bit about the Beach Boys by that time. I wasn't totally Beach Boys illiterate because I heard their music on the radio, including a song called Sail on Sailor, which was a minor hit in the 70s that they put out. That actually got a lot of airplay on Chicago area radio stations, believe it or not. In fact, a lot of people, a lot of you who aren't familiar with the Beach Boys, you might be familiar with Sail on Sailor, but just never knew that it was the Beach Boys. I didn't know until probably, 
probably 1990 that it was the Beach Boys, <laughs> but that that was just crazy. That uh, I I knew a lot more than I than I really thought I knew. I I knew that the Beach Boys consisted of three brothers: Brian, Carl, and Dennis Wilson, and two other guys. And the guy with the whiny voice that I couldn't stand, who was the lead singer, and I get around. That was Mike Love. For most of their tenure, the other guy was the rhythm guitarist Al Jardine. And there's you need a little bit of a flow chart to kind of trace the evolution of the Beach Boys, but that's the basic band right there. And Brian Wilson was kind of the guy in charge for a long time. He wrote most of their songs. He produced most of their material. He arranged the vocal harmonies, and he sang and played instruments on the recording. So he did so much. He was so involved with everything. He's highly regarded as a huge hunk and genius to this day, actually. I knew that much about the Beach Boys. I knew that Dennis had died in 1983 and that Brian almost died several times and that he had cleaned up in the 80s. And that was pretty much it. I didn't know a lot of a lot more about the Beach Boys, but I knew that much. And I actually knew that they were more than just summer surfing uh, cars and beach kind of things. I knew that their catalog had a lot more to it than that, again, because I was familiar with a song called Sail on Sailor. But moving on, uh, after hearing Don't Worry Baby, I would just suck up any Beach Boys material I could. I had gotten a job at the public library in 1990, the summer before my junior year of high school. I was 15 years old. So I had really easy access to a lot of materials. Uh, I'd just go to work, and if I saw something I liked, I'd set it aside, check it out. During my lunch break, I'd look through the records and tapes and look for stuff. So I found that uh, our library carried a lot of Beach Boys albums on cassette from uh, the 60s. And they were reissues from the 80s. And the thing about that is that a lot of the 80s reissues, the albums actually were missing a couple of songs. And they were really, really cheap. They were called the budget reissues. So a lot of the albums were missing two or three songs. But hey, I got what I could. I'd bring home the tapes. I'd make copies of them. I could put like three albums on one 90-minute tape. So I would do that. We had a few one-off albums on vinyl, too. Like, we had the uh, Christmas album. I think we had 15 Big Ones, which was uh, the album they put out in 1976 to celebrate their 15th anniversary. And I actually liked it. Not, not a lot of fans like that album, but I really enjoyed it. And uh, by the way, sneak preview for you here. Uh, there's actually going to be a segment in my next podcast. Uh, it's uh, I've probably mentioned it before, but I'm going to do a podcast called Autobiography of a Schnook. And uh, every episode is going to have a segment about music. And one of those music segments is going to be specifically about 15 big ones. And I also have a guest set aside for that one. I'm really excited about that. But anyway, going back, this was 1990 again. And in 1990, Capitol Records reissued all the Beach Boys albums that they owned at the time, which would have been their first album, Surf and Safari, from 1962, all the way up to 2020, which came out in 1969. The reissue series was on compact disc and cassette. Each disc or cassette had two complete albums without any songs missing and bonus tracks, besides alternate single mixes, previously unreleased songs. It was great and extensive liner notes. Thing is, I didn't realize that they were out on cassette because most record stores didn't stock their cassette reissues, but they had the CD reissues. 
but I had really been wanting to get a CD player for a long time. Of course, when you're 15 years old, you don't have a driver's license, and you can't just drive to the mall and buy a CD player, and my parents were not really thrilled with the prospect of me getting a CD player because, well, my my dad actually was, I think, the actually put his foot down on that because he said, oh, CDs are expensive. You'll go broke just buying music. And put, putting it in perspective, though, at least back then, CDs would cost anywhere between $13 and $18 a pop, depending on where you went shopping. And tapes were usually about $8, sometimes less. Thing is, my dad was always good with basic math. He could always do some pretty sharp calculations to this day. And I would even point out to him that the math would work out in my favor because I'd be paying, say, on cassette $8 for one album with a good chance it might be missing a song or two versus an average of $16 for a CD with two complete albums plus extra songs and, of course, better sound quality, better physical durability, but... I guess he just didn't want to listen to that reasoning, but I did what I could. I'd keep borrowing tapes from the library and record them. I would borrow records of uh, the studio albums that I didn't have, and um, that's what I was doing. And uh, I know I told the story, I th- I'm pr- at least I'm pretty sure I told the story that I eventually did get a CD player for Christmas. It was Christmas Eve 1990 when we were opening presents, and there was a CD player for me under the tree. And in the box, there were three CDs. There was uh, Tripping the Live Fantastic Highlights from Paul McCartney. Uh, That was from uh, his 1989 tour, I believe. And there was the Beatles' White Album and the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds. I know I've told my Pet Sounds story in the Christmas episode of this podcast in 2017, but let me just retell it quickly and shortly. I had always heard at that point that if there's one Beach Boys album you need to hear, it's Pet Sounds from 1966, considered one of the greatest rock and roll albums of all time, and that it inspired the Beatles to do the Sgt. Pepper's album, and everybody goes nuts for Pet Sounds, everybody loves Pet Sounds, blah, 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 blah. Well, I listened to a vinyl version that I got from the library via interlibrary loan, but I was like, yeah, this kind of sounds boring and... The mix is bad. I I don't really like it. It didn't really do anything for me. But the thing is, over the months after I heard that, I was thinking, maybe I should really give that album a second chance. I probably should. And well, here was my opportunity. I had Pet Sounds on CD now. And of course, I was thrilled to get that CD player. I couldn't wait to try it out. So after we finished exchanging presents and everybody was going to bed, I stayed up and I connected the CD player and uh, I didn't want to bother everybody, so I plugged in my headphones and I turned out the lights so I wouldn't disturb anybody. I figured, well, now's as good a time as any to give Pet Sounds another chance. So here I was in the dark, listening to Pet Sounds with my headphones. And this time, I got it. I absolutely got it. It just clicked that moment. And for various reasons, that moment, listening to Pet Sounds, it literally changed my life. And I mean that in a good way, by the way. And I swear to all things holy, seven years later, I saw a video clip of Brian Wilson saying, when you listen to Pet Sounds, listen in the dark with headphones. You'll hear everything. Pastor was right. And to this day, Pet Sounds is my favorite album ever. Yes, the Beatles are my favorite group, but Pet Sounds is my favorite album ever, ever, ever. And 28 years later, still is. But anyway, that was, uh, again, 1990. And over the next few years, I was kind of gradually buying up all the capital two-on-one CD reissues. 
And when I was going to the store, I noticed there were some albums from the 70s that were kind of creeping out that Capitol wasn't reissuing because they didn't have the rights to the Beach Boys 70s material, just their 60s material. One of them really stuck out for me. There was this album called Sunflower, and I never heard of it. I actually did hear of the Beach Boys' other 70s albums, but I never heard of Sunflower. Nonetheless, I figured, okay, these albums I'm going to get after I get all the Capitol albums. So just keep that in mind for now. Uh, it was Sometime in 1993, though, I was starting to get a little bit tired of the Beach Boys, and I kind of lost track of uh, the music. I still planned to get the rest of those Capitol CDs, but it wasn't a huge priority anymore at that point. But that summer, the Beach Boys put out a 30th anniversary box set, and they called it Good Vibrations. Uh, yeah, it was a 30th anniversary box set, despite the fact that their 30th anniversary was actually two years earlier, but hey, semantics. And I, I wasn't planning to get it. I mean, yeah, I liked the Beach Boys, but not enough to buy a box set. Uh, of course, if it were the Beatles, I would have been the first in line. <laughs> the thing about that is, though, uh, my brother was a huge fan of Stephen Gary. And those of you who don't know who Stephen Gary are slash were whatever, uh, they were radio personalities in the Chicago area. They were on uh, WLS and WLUP. They did talk radio. And uh, Steve Dahl, who was the Steve of Stephen Gary, he was kind of a shock jock and I never liked him. <laughs> and uh, interestingly, Steve Dahl was uh, for a short time a member of Brian Wilson's backup band. <laughs> My brother had uh, the Stephen Gary show on one day in the summer of 1993 and they're both uh, both Stephen Gary are huge Beach Boys fans and they had just gotten the Good Vibrations box set and they were playing little bits and pieces of it and they were kind of commenting over the tracks. Like they were playing the songs, but kind of commenting while they're, while the songs were playing. Now, before I go any further, I should say that this box was a huge deal for diehard Beach Boys fans because it included a little under half an hour of unreleased music from an unfinished album called Smile, which was supposed to be the follow-up to Pet Sounds. Now, I'm going to try to not spend too much time on Smile or else this off-topic episode is going to be way off-topic. But the Smile album was so legendary that literally books, yes, plural books, have been written about the recording and cancellation of the Smile album. And people who were around at the time and who heard what Brian Wilson was working on, like journalists who stopped by the studio, uh, friends of his, the musicians who performed on the uh, Smile sessions, were going around saying how the music was just absolutely mind-blowing and it promised to be a quite revolutionary album. But for various reasons, Brian canceled the album after well over a year of working on it. So he got the Beach Boys into the studio really quickly and re-recorded some of the Smile songs in a very simplistic manner and threw a couple of other songs together really quickly and they came out with an album called Smiley Smile. And part of the Smile legend is that during the recording of Smile was when Brian was really starting to get majorly into various drugs. He was taking LSD a lot and uh, other chemicals, and uh, they think that part of that might have affected him during the sessions and might have led to his decision to scrap the album. Brian had claimed that uh, some of the other Beach Boys didn't like the music that they were recording, although there is reason to believe that that was just simply not true. One of the plans that Brian had for Smile was to have a four-part suite called The Elements, 
and each of those four parts would be representative of the four ancient elements of earth, air, fire, and water. Kind of like uh, the Sword Quests series, right, Ferg? And uh, Brian Wilson, he recorded the fire segment in uh, November 1966, and it's this loud, raucous, pounding piece. Of, it's pretty scary, actually. When you, uh, the first time I heard it, it scared the crap out of me. But it's a pretty frightening piece of music. It's supposed to represent this huge, destructive fire. And not only was the music itself kind of frightening, but there was also the sound of crackling fire in the background because Brian actually took a can full of wood and set it on fire in the studio so that the musicians could kind of get the ambiance of fire and so he could get the actual sound effects of fire going on. And uh, Brian had claimed that around the time that he was recording that, that there was a building down the street from the studio that burned down and it freaked him out. He was convinced that the fire music that he recorded sent out these bad vibes that caused that fire to happen. And uh, interestingly, nobody's been able to come up with any kind of historical research that showed any evidence of any buildings in the vicinity of the studio burning down. But nonetheless, that piece of music really freaked Brian out. He decided he didn't want anything to do with fire. He said, I'm going to re-record fire, except it's just going to represent a candle, because a candle is also a fire. But there were some other things that happened in the course of time that made Brian decide not to release Smile. I don't know if there's one single solid reason as to why Smile didn't happen. Lots of people have come up with theories as to the real reason that Smile was canceled. And usually... It's either that Brian just literally did not know what to do with the music he recorded because there was a lot of it and it needed to be sequenced a certain way and he didn't know how to sequence it properly, or that he felt that the production style he was going for with Smile had been passe by that point. So he just wanted to scrap it all and just move on to the next thing in production. And um, over the, the next years, decades actually, Brian was just not willing to talk about Smile. If you asked him about Smile, he'd try to brush off any questions about it. If someone asked him if uh, there's a chance that uh, the Smile sessions would ever be released, he'd say no because I burned the tapes. I have, uh, I know somewhere in my collection, in my tape collection, there's an audio, there's a radio interview with Brian from I think 1994 when he was asked about uh, the possibility of finishing Smile. He just kind of laughed. He said, you know, the only way I would ever finish Smile is if somebody put a gun to my head and forced me to do it. But he would just go off. He'd, he'd say, oh, that music was inappropriate. The music was garbage, whatever. But the thing is, this Good Vibrations box set that came out in 1993, it had some of the actual original Smile recordings on it. So that was a major, huge deal to a lot of fans. I wasn't terribly smile literate at the time so it didn't i could go one way or another with it um i had definitely heard smiley smile so i actually owned a tape copy of that and i really loved smiley smile because it was such a bizarre album she made a beeline to her room and grabbed all kind of juice she started pouring it on her head and thought it growing back <laughs> i thought that it was simply just the beach boys just trying to be goofy for one album I didn't realize it was kind of a side effect of what was supposed to happen. But yeah, the Good Vibrations box set had some smile music, not fire, of course, because <laughs> uh, I'm sure that if that was supposed to be on the lineup, Brian would have stepped in and said, nope, don't put that on there. So Steve and Gary were 
looking through the track listing on this box, and there were two songs from the Smile Sessions on there. When they saw the titles, they were cracking up. Now, here's the thing. It was kind of a habit for Brian for when he would record music. If he didn't yet have a title, like during the studio sessions or sometimes on his note-taking, he would just come up with the most bizarre titles. Like when he recorded California Girls, everybody knows that song. But when he recorded California Girls, the lyrics hadn't yet been written. So he didn't have a title. He didn't know where, where that song was going to go. He just had the, the melody and the backing track ready to go. So there actually exists a session tape of Brian in the production booth announcing a take, calling the song, You're Grass and I'm a Power Mower. Right, here we go. You're Grass and I'm a Power Mower. Take, what is it? So the same thing was actually going on during Smile because there were two tracks on the uh, Good Vibrations box set from Smile. One was called Do You Like Worms? And another was called I Love to Say Dada. So they saw those titles and they were cracking up. They're like, oh my God, put this one on, put this one on now. But they were just kind of playing random tracks from the box. And of course, and like I said before, they were providing commentary over the music. And there's an alternate version of God Only Knows. That was a pretty sizable hit for them. Uh, so Steve and Gary were playing this alternate version of God Only Knows. And just all of a sudden it had this, the ending was just a cappella vocal harmonies. God only knows what I And Steve and Gary were both very obviously stunned. And I don't remember if it was Gary or Steve, but one of them said, why didn't they just release it like this back then? But I remember, oh my God, this is amazing. I was stunned too. So just because of that version of God Only Knows, I didn't care about anything else in that box set. I wanted that version of God Only Knows. I needed the Good Vibrations box set. And my brother had just gotten married a couple of months earlier, and uh, my best man present was a pretty decent gift certificate for the mall. So I went to the Musicland store at the mall and bought the Good Vibrations box set with it. And uh, that actually kind of rekindled my obsession with the Beach Boys, because I was listening to pieces of it. I listened to the Smile music. I liked some of it, but others I was like, yeah, I can take or leave it. But uh, some of it was pretty cool, I thought. And some of it was obviously written by a very disturbed man. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, it was a five-disc set. There were five discs. Actually, in Europe, there was a sixth disc, but in America, it was only five discs. And I remember the third disc was what really grabbed me. The third disc actually focused, I think, mainly on their 70s material, which... A lot of diehard fans will tell you it's probably their best material. So I started listening to that. And there were some tracks from that Sunflower album I mentioned that I'd never heard of. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Why, why was this not a bigger hit? Late at night, I think about so I was listening to disc three and disc three had a song called Surf's Up and the Beach Boys had an album in 1971 called Surf's Up and it had nothing to do with surfing whatsoever. Uh, Surf's Up was actually an unreleased track from Smile that was finished for that one album. And I had been familiar with the song because I heard it on the radio a couple of times during a couple of Beach Boys uh, specials. I think the oldie station was running. So I heard it and I was like, hmm, this is an interesting song. So I saw that it was on the box set. So I was like, okay, let me listen to Surf's Up. I want to hear that again. So I did and I was really digging it. 
And uh, it was the second to the last track on disc three of the Good Vibrations box set. And I was sitting at my computer while listening to it. I was probably playing a game of my Amiga or something. I don't remember. But I remember it was uh, almost sunset and I was listening to this music. And I was just feeling kind of lazy. So I was like, yeah, I'll just let it play through to the last track. And the last track on that disc was a song called Till I Die. And when it started playing, I just kind of froze right in my place and I could not move. It was just that moving. was just that gripping it's a very emotional song it's a short song an emotional song and it's again just jammed with vocal harmonies that the beach boys are known for and it's kind of heartbreaking uh, the story behind till i die if i remember my beach boys history correctly is that uh, brian had written that song when he was 27 years old it was 1969 when he wrote it 1971 when it was released he had it recorded around that time as well but it was written during a time in his life when he felt terribly insignificant and he thought that really the next thing that was going to be going on in his life was literally dying. He thought that, well, my life is over now. I'm just going to wait to die and well, that's probably going to be coming soon. <laughs> and it's just so heartbreaking yet it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard in my life at that point. And I, I just sat there just frozen and after it was over... I ran over to the CD player and played that song again and sat down on the floor right next to uh, the speakers and just sat there with my jaw hanging, hanging. Whoa, whoa, oh my God. So I decided now was the time that I had to buy those CDs of their 70s albums. So went to the store and uh, they only had the Capitol albums. <laughs> None of the 70s albums from Warner Brothers or Caribou. Because uh, the Beach Boys actually left Capitol Records in 1969 after they had a falling out with Capitol Records. A lawsuit happened and everything. Um, one of many, many Beach Boys related lawsuits. <laughs> oh man, I, I'd like to write a book about all the lawsuits that involved the Beach Boys, but... So in 1970, they signed a deal with Warner Brothers Records, and they ended up on the uh, subsidiary label Reprise, which I think Frank Sinatra started. And what's interesting was that one of the stipulations of their contract with Warner Brothers was that the Beach Boys had to submit a final version of Smile for release by, I think, July 1st, 1973. And if they did not meet the terms of their contract, they would be fined $50,000. Uh, spoiler alert, uh, they had to fork over $50,000 in 1973. <laughs> but anyway, getting back to uh, my own story here, I went to the store and I couldn't find any of those CDs from the 70s. I couldn't find Sunflower. I couldn't find Surf's Up. I couldn't find Holland, which was probably their, arguably one of their most popular albums of the 70s. And it's a really good album, by the way. Really awesome. Very FM radio-ish. Um, but I couldn't find any. Apparently, those CDs of the 70s albums were only out for a short time. They were out of print, so I couldn't find them. So I just felt kind of dumbfounded. They just, the Beach Boys just put out this collection that has stuff from their 70s albums, yet you can't get their 70s albums. What is going on here? 
So over the next few years, I would have to kind of scour cutout bins in different stores. Um, I found a couple of their albums at a Walgreens of all places. And uh, there were some Beach Boys fan communities online at the time. Yeah, I've been on the internet since 1992, by the way, folks. But there were mailing lists. There were news groups of uh, Beach Boys fans. And it was generally considered to be a gentleman's agreement that if you happen to find one of these out-of-print CDs in a store, if you didn't want it, you would grab it anyway in case somebody else wanted it, and you would post a for sale ad or something. So that's kind of how I acquired their albums from the 70s on CD. And uh, the albums that were on CD, it was actually released by Caribou Records, which was uh, a label founded by Jim Gersio, who produced Blood, Sweat, and Tears for a while, and he, and he was the main producer behind Chicago. But Caribou Records released the Beach Boys albums from 1970 to 1985 on CD. And in fact, the Beach Boys left Warner Brothers uh, in the late 70s and went to Caribou. And the thing is, after the Holland album came out, the quality of the Beach Boys music was kind of going a little bit downhill. Uh, First of all, Holland was probably... Their creative peak. Holland came out in 1973, the very beginning of 1973, and it was called Holland because the group recorded most of the album in the Netherlands. And uh, Brian Wilson at the time, he was going through really, really, really bad times. He was severely depressed. He was doing a lot of drugs. He was just withdrawing from the world completely. They thought that maybe if they set up a studio in a completely different country, that he'd be a little bit more into doing things. And so they literally shipped a recording studio to Holland. They painstakingly deconstructed a recording studio and rebuilt it in the Netherlands. And they recorded what really turned out to be a great album there. And people loved it. They absolutely loved it. Uh, and by that time, they the Beach Boys had acquired a couple of guys from a band called The Flames, And the Flames were a band from South Africa that Carl Wilson had discovered, and he produced an album for them. And they had been renamed, instead of being called the Flames, they renamed themselves the Flames so they wouldn't get confused with James Brown's backup singers, who were called the Flames. But a couple of guys from the Flames, uh, Blondie Chaplin and Ricky Fatar, joined the Beach Boys. And uh, Ricky Fatar, by the way, he uh, might be known by some people as Stig O'Hara from The Ruddles, which was a Beatles parody group that Eric Idle put together in 1978. And it turned out that this kind of fusion of the Beach Boys and these two guys from The Flame on the Holland album worked out amazingly well. It was the music was just absolutely stupendous. It really was. And that's when you got this great song called Sail on Sailor and uh, that was a song by Brian Wilson and a bunch of other people actually chipped in on that. So that was probably really the last great song he wrote before he really seriously sank into this deep depression that almost killed him a couple of times. So they worked on Holland, and then for uh, for a while, the band went out on tour, but they didn't put out any new material for a couple of years. They had Brian go through some drug rehab. They found this whack job therapist named Eugene Landy, and uh, uh, Landy's whole thing was basically 24-hour control of Brian Wilson. He's like, just let me do my, my methods here, and I'll get him clean. 
and uh, Landy had to basically be present for all band meetings. He had to be present for all the recording sessions and all that stuff. So that was kind of a weird time for the Beach Boys and for Brian. But another thing that happened, though, remember what I said about Endless Summer, how that was a huge monster hit album. That compilation came out in 1974 on Capitol Records. Capitol Records, even though the Beach Boys were under contract by Warner Brothers, Capitol Records still owned the rights to the Beach Boys music from 1962 to 1966, I think. So they put out a compilation of some of the Beach Boys' most popular, like, surf and car and summer songs, and it was a massive seller. And this was in the mid-70s when there was this huge nostalgia thing going on. That's when Happy Days, the TV show, took off. Nostalgia for earlier times was going on. So earlier times, well, hey, the Beach Boys. And it was also 1976 by this time. What was happening in 1976? Oh, yes, the U.S. Bicentennial. America, yay. And who was considered America's band? Why, the Beach Boys. So Endless Summer was all over the freaking place. So when the Beach Boys went out on tour, they pretty much did just their oldies. They didn't do their new material. And the next album they put out in 1976, it was called 15 Big Ones. So-called because they've been together for 15 years at that point, and because the album had 15 songs. Eight of which were cover songs from the 50s and 60s. Go to the chat. And some of the originals were considered uh, not to be the greatest quality. Uh, And this is something that somebody told me, by the way. Terry Hemmert, who's a longtime disc jockey at WXRT in Chicago, she is a legend in this town. Apparently, her comment about 15 big ones when it came out was, I waited four years for this crap. She remembered what the, the basically the note that the Beach Boys left out on with Holland, and she was expecting, oh, here we go, we have an album. Oh, and it's produced by Brian Wilson. This is the first album in a long time produced by Brian Wilson. It's going to be great. Uh, it wasn't great. Uh, personally, I enjoy 15 Big Ones. but So that came out, and the Beach Boys fired Eugene Landy because he got expensive, and uh, they hired another psychologist to work with Brian, who was a little bit more mainstream and didn't do the 24-hour life control thing. And Brian really got along great with the guy, and he was making really good progress, but unfortunately the guy died in a freak accident, I think, and uh, it really upset Brian, and uh, basically he started going back downhill. But I'm not going to try to get too much into the history of uh, everything here. I'm just trying to explain kind of explain why I love this stuff so much, but I eventually did acquire all, all the albums on CD and I eventually started getting the albums on vinyl too. And I'm trying to go for originals. Um, one thing I've not been able to do is acquire an original Pacific ocean blue, which is Dennis Wilson's solo album from 1977. I just never see a used copy of that in any record stores. It's been reissued. There's a 2008 reissue that I see all the time, but I want the original. And man, I'm kicking myself to this day for this, but probably about 15 years ago, I saw a promo copy of Pacific Ocean Blue from 1977 for $25 at Beetlefest. And uh, the vendor wouldn't budge on the price, so I, I let it go and I never saw it again. So I'm really upset with myself over that. But hey, there's... Always tomorrow, right? 
And of course, when I was really getting into the Beach Boys, I was learning so much. Um, I realizing that this music was primarily happening because of Brian Wilson, because he wrote most of this stuff. I become what people called a Brianista, the major Brian Wilson fan. Like he was everything. And around the time that I'd become a fan, so the early 90s, if you became a fan of the Beach Boys at, at that point, basically you were kind of brainwashed into believing that Brian Wilson was everything good about the world and Mike Love, his cousin, and uh, the, the other singer in the group who sang the bass parts of the harmonies, he sang lead and I get around in a lot of other songs. He was evil. He was a jerk. He was, uh, he was Satan. He was terrible because he didn't agree with Brian on everything. He, um, he had so many ex-wives, which is true. <laughs> but basically there were all these reasons you were supposed to hate Mike Love and because Mike Love sued everybody and he did this, he did that. And he's Satan incarnate and <laughs> everything. And I was, I, I had that attitude for a long time, but the truth is my attitude has really, really mellowed toward Mike over the years. And I no longer think he's like evil incarnate. Uh, I've, I've learned a lot about Mike love that I, that just wasn't really known back then. He recently released uh, a memoir, which Basically, he's, he's like, okay, I know everybody hates me, but just here's my side of the story as I see it. And a lot of the things that he talked about, it's like, okay, this is true. Yeah, this is, this is very true. Yeah, you kind of understand. And, and also, when you just really look at things with a clear head, a lot of things that were written about Mike Love back then are just plain not really true or just plain misinterpreted. And one thing was very interesting was that a lot of people say that the reason smile never happened was that Mike love didn't like it. And Brian himself said that, but Mike himself said, well, truth is if we didn't like it, we didn't have to be on the album. He said the smile sessions have been released, which is true. In 2011, there was a, a massive box set that focused on the smile music because Brian eventually kind of mellowed on the whole smile thing. And in 2011, there was this massive box set dedicated to the smile sessions and included the fire music, by the way, in Mike's memoir, he said, well, if you truly, truly think that we didn't like the music, you can listen to those sessions. Now you can hear that we were all willing participants. If we didn't like it, we didn't have to be there. So it's like, that's really a good point. He said, I, I didn't understand a lot of it, but that doesn't mean I didn't like it. And also this, I mean, it's one of the reasons that people hated Mike love so much is that he was constantly suing people, including Brian. And thing is like, if you really like read between the lines and see what's going on in the history, there, there's some re there's some good reasons for these lawsuits, but I'm not going to get into why, but there was one time when uh, I actually did get to talk with one of Mike's lawyers a couple of times. And my first impression of, of this person was she was such a sweet woman. She really was. She was really, really nice. And one thing that she said to me was, you know, we know what the fans are saying about Mike and suing people and all this. And we know that fans are saying, oh, Mike's lawyers are really getting rich now and, uh, and they're loving this. And she said, believe me, nothing could be further from the truth. We are so sick of this stuff. <laughs> She said, we just want to sit this guy down and say, look, you're all in your sixties. Now, will you just get over yourselves? <laughs> but ever since this was probably about 2004, I think when I, when I was speaking to, to that, uh, that lawyer, she, again, she was such a nice woman. She really, really was. 
And a lot of what she told me, I was, it was like, wow, this actually, this explains a lot. <laughs> and, uh, the truth is like Brian and Mike, they've always gotten along They're they're They've always been close, uh, at least as close as they've been allowed to become given their certain situations. <laughs> but, uh, I'm not going to get into that aspect right now. Long story short, Brian Wilson's management, but, <laughs> but I, I'm just kind of going to leave it at this. All I'm going to say from this point on is that, yeah, I'm still a massive Brian Wilson fan. I have literally left the country to go to a Brian Wilson concert. I went to Canada. actually, and that was actually my wife's decision. Uh, in fact, my wife and I met because of Pet Sounds, as uh, some of you know. But uh, there's one thing that I do have to mention. And uh, I mentioned before how Brian eventually mellowed on the whole smile thing. Well, the thing is, Beach Boys fans have known one thing. And one thing is that Brian Wilson never liked touring. It was a rarity to see. Even in 1963, I didn't realize this, but in 1963, he seldom went on the tours. The Beach Boys on tour for a long time in 1963 were Carl Wilson, Dennis Wilson, Mike Love, Al Jardine, and David Marks. Because Brian sat out, he didn't want to go touring because he wanted to be back at the studio producing material, writing songs. He said, I can't do this stuff when I'm on the road. So he'd stay behind. David Marks was uh, the rhythm guitarist from 1962 until sometime in 1963, he got tired of dealing with uh, Murray Wilson. Murray was the Wilson brothers' father, and he was their manager. And Murray was kind of a dictator, and David Marks got fed up with him, so he said, screw this, I'm quitting the band. And Brian panicked when that happened because he realized, oh God, that means I have to go on tour again. So, yep, sure enough, he went back out on the road. And in 1964, it was uh, December 23rd, 1964, I believe, during a flight to Texas to launch a short concert tour, he had a nervous breakdown on the flight. I think Rolling Stone rated that as one of the defining moments of rock and roll. And why was that one of the defining moments of rock and roll? Because it was at that moment that Brian kind of laid it out for them. They said, look, you saw what happened to me. I can't deal with going out on the road. I have to be home. I have to be in the studio. I have to be writing songs for us. I have to be producing. I want to produce other people too. So I need to stay home. So he convinced the Beach Boys to let him stay off the road while they went out touring. And whom did they get to fill his place on the road but Glenn Campbell? So, <laughs> uh, remember me mentioning Glenn Campbell? Yeah, so that was interesting that they had Glenn Campbell as Brian Wilson's substitute on the road. So Glenn eventually left the touring band because he wanted to do his own solo thing. And uh, what's interesting, though, is that as kind of a thank you gift from Brian... Brian gave Glenn Campbell a song to record, and he produced it for him. It was called Guess I'm Dumb, and that was in uh, 1965, and that was really an amazing record. The vocals are fantastic. The production is top-notch. And uh, you know what? I'm going to link that in the show notes. There's, it's got to be on YouTube somewhere, but Guess I'm Dumb is quite an amazing record. So Glenn Campbell quit the touring band, and so they found another guy to replace him, and his name was Bruce Johnston. And Bruce Johnston's claim to fame was that he was in the Rip Chords, and the Rip Chords was a Beach Boys knockoff band. Hey, little Cobra, don't you know you're gonna shut them down? They were basically trying to ride the Beach Boys coattails, and I think the reason they went with Bruce Johnston is because Brian really liked what he was doing. <laughs> 
And uh, later on, Bruce would have a much bigger claim to fame by writing Barry Manilow's 1975 hit song, I Write the Songs. So Bruce Johnston took Brian's place on the road, and eventually he was actually part of the band permanently, like in the studio and on the road. So there were now six Beach Boys. But the thing about Brian Wilson's breakdown is that that basically showed the Beach Boys he needed to stay home. So he was home, and he was doing some recording. He now had enough time to produce what he wanted to produce. So his typical modus operandi was, I think what he would do is he'd have the backing tracks to the Beach Boys songs recorded while the other Beach Boys were out on tour, and they'd be finished in time for the Beach Boys to come home from the road and go in the studio and record their vocals. And you can seriously tell a huge difference between songs that uh, the Beach Boys recorded when Brian was touring and songs that the Beach Boys recorded when he wasn't touring. Because there's definitely a difference in production values. There really, really is. And people consider 1965 to be like his primo, like 1965 to 1966 to be Brian's absolute prime in production. And, of course, that was uh, the period that resulted in Pet Sounds and the song Good Vibrations, which was considered one of the best-produced singles ever made. And, of course, starting in 1966, going on through 1967, he started working on the Smile album. He hooked up with this uh, lyricist named Van Dyke Parks, who was a session musician who worked on a lot of recordings. He was also an actor. Uh, he's actually in a, at least a couple of movies. He was, he, you know what? He was in the Popeye movie with Robin Williams, believe it or not. Uh, he was in a movie when he was a little kid. He was actually in a Honeymooners episode when he was a little kid. Uh, it's not one of the th- classic 39. It was on one of the one of the lost episodes of the Honeymooners that they found in, sometime in the 80s. Uh, it was called The Hero, by the way, if you want to look that up. There was an episode of the Honeymooners called The Hero when Van Dyke Parks played a neighbor kid. But of course, you know, I talked about before how smile didn't happen and of course over the years people kept asking when is smile gonna happen when is smile gonna happen and truth be told there were little pieces of smile that kind of trickled out on various beach boys albums over the next few years but not the actual project itself ever happened because brian just wouldn't allow it he wouldn't allow it he's like oh it's too emotional for me to go back to that time you know it's it was a bad time for me i don't want anything to do with it What was really interesting, well, one of the songs that came about from uh, the Smile Sessions was a song called Heroes and Villains, which actually was finished and released, and it was a minor hit in 1967. It wasn't a huge hit, but it was a minor hit. It was a pretty respectable hit, actually. And uh, when the cancellation of Smile happened, like, Brian started kind of slowly going downhill. He's kind of retreated from the public. He was going through drug addiction, and he was... He knocked on death's door so many times, but he would rarely ever, ever, ever go out on the road with the Beach Boys. And even as late as the 90s, he was just kind of a recluse in the 90s, like after he had no longer been abusing himself with drugs and uh, he'd gotten away from the psychologist, Eugene Landy, who was controlling his life during the 80s. 
Brian worked with uh, Landy in 1976, and he hooked up with him again a few years later, actually, basically as a last-ditch effort to save his life, and it actually worked. Unfortunately, Landy uh, eventually got a little bit too controlling of Brian. Uh, A lot of people realized that Landy was kind of a danger to Brian, and Landy actually had Brian's will altered so that Landy would be Brian's primary beneficiary. (laughs) But they got Brian away from Landy, and uh, Brian was actually living a better life than he ever had before, but he was still not really willing to go out in public very much. But uh, in the late 90s, he put out a solo album and he did three signings. There was, uh, I think, a Tower Records in LA, um, Tower Records in Greenwich Village, and The Borders in uh, downtown Chicago on Michigan Avenue. Naturally, I went to the one on Michigan Avenue. I, Man, I was, I think everybody there was just so beside themselves like i said i met my wife because of pet sounds and we had just started really our relationship had really started taking off by that time and uh, we had a long distance thing going on she lived in new jersey i lived in the chicago suburbs and when it came to my turn in line uh, I got up to, to Brian's table. I said, oh my God, Brian, I'm such a huge fan. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Uh, here's a picture of my girlfriend. We met because of pet sounds. And he looked at it and he said, wow, thanks. And then he signed, he signed a couple of CDs for me and I was on my way and uh, <laughs> I was such a dork. I think everybody was. And, uh, it was quite obvious that Brian was just not used to being out in public because he barely looked up. Uh, he looked up when I handed him, when I, when I showed him a picture of, uh, of Lisa, <laughs> that was just about it. Uh, he was clearly not comfortable being out in public, but I think the reason that he did that was that his wife wanted him to see how much love the fans had for him and that he needed to see that people really wanted to see him. And the biggest shock of all time happened the following year when it was announced that he was going to go out on a solo tour. Nobody saw that coming. Nobody saw that coming. I'll just never forget that first solo concert that I went to. It was at the Beacon Theater in June of 1999, New York City. I'll just never forget that. What was really weird, though, before the concert started, of all people, Steve Dahl walked out on stage. I was like, wait, Steve? What's he doing here? I was like, am I back in Chicago? But he came out on stage and he said, All right, before we start the concert, we're going to show a 20-minute film about Brian. This film is going to have nothing about Brian that you guys don't already know, but we think you'll like it anyway. So they showed the film, and the film ended with audio footage of Brian producing a song called The Little Girl I Once Knew, which was a Beach Boys single in 1965. And the very last thing you heard was Brian announcing the take number, and then he counted off the song, and then the the song kind of counted off one, two, three. Three, four, and then the band on stage started playing the little girl I once knew, and the crowd went crazy. Brian wasn't on stage at that point yet, but after a few bars of the intro, Brian jogged out on stage, and I swear the place exploded. You heard a few thousand people having religious experiences. We're talking people who basically went through their adult lives thinking they would never get to see Brian Wilson in person ever. And here he was doing a solo concert. It was just mind-blowing. And he wasn't bad. People were afraid he w- he just wouldn't perform very well. Or that he, he would just run off the stage in fear. In fact, some of his band members even told him, look, if things get too much for you, it's okay if you need to run off stage and take a break. He never did. 
he was he was definitely uncomfortable. He looked he he really did look terrified, but he stuck it out. And one thing that really got to people was in the set list was a song called Caroline No, which is the last song off Pet Sounds. In the very end of Caroline No, Brian sings this really high note. And Brian had actually released a remake of Caroline No a few years earlier, in which instead of doing the high note, he kind of dropped it an octave. So he was like, oh, Caroline, no. And, and people thought he was going to do that. No, he went for the high note. He kind of struggled a little bit, but he got it. And I just remember how just the crowd went absolutely wild for it. And wow. And I just remember when that concert was over, I said to my wife, well, she wasn't my wife yet. She was just my fiance at the time. But I said to her, yeah, we are so lucky. We're, we're, there's no way we're ever going to get to see Brian in concert again. Well, turns out he actually has been touring pretty consistently ever since. So we've seen him many, many times. Like I think, I think we've seen him 30 times actually. We thought for so long we would never get to see him. And so now that we realize we can, we're going to see him every opportunity we can, every opportunity we can. And probably the most monumental thing, though, at a uh, New Year's Eve party that one of his bandmates was hosting, Brian is drawn to a piano. If there's a piano in the room, he will go to it and just play it for whatever reason. Uh, He'll just play it because he can, because he's Brian Wilson. (laughs) And and because he's always got music going through his head that he's got to get out somehow. And so the guy hosting the party said, hey, Brian, if you want to play the piano, go right ahead. It's, It's totally okay. So he was just sitting at the piano and somebody comes up to him and said, Hey Brian, could you play heroes and villains? And Brian said, really? You want to hear that? He said, well, okay. So he started playing and singing heroes and villains and everybody at the party just dropped everything stunned. They're like, Oh my God, he's singing heroes and villains. He, he refuses to, to acknowledge that song and now he's singing it. And his wife went over to him and said, um, you know that TNT tribute that's being filmed um, in the spring? Why don't you add that song to the set list for it? He's like, okay. And uh, TNT, the cable channel owned by Ted Turner, they were doing a series of uh, tributes to different people. There was a John Lennon tribute, uh, and there was one for Brian Wilson that they filmed at Radio City Music Hall. My wife and I actually went to that taping, by the way. And it was really, really awesome. Um, But... We were there when Brian did Heroes and Villains for the first time, and my wife and I were just shocked. There were a whole bunch of celebrity guests. There was Paul Simon, uh, Vince Gill, Carly Simon, Anna Nancy Wilson from Heart, Ricky Martin, <laughs> uh, Billy Joel, Elton John. There was this major celebrity tribute to Brian, and they were singing different Beach Boys songs, you know. But what was crazy is that Brian came out on stage when, after, after all the celebrity tributes were done, they announced, okay, ladies and gentlemen, Brian Wilson. So Brian comes out, takes the stage, and he talks about uh, how I'm doing this for Dennis and Carl, you know, because uh, both of his brothers are long gone now. He sits down at the keyboard. He says, okay, here we go with heroes and villains. And they start singing heroes and villains. And I, I really wasn't thinking anything. I was like, hmm, this is a weird song to start with. And then all of a sudden it hits me. I was like, holy shit. They're doing heroes and villains. I screamed like a little girl and my wife nearly tore the sleeve off my sweater. I mean, heroes and villains. Brian had said once, don't expect me to ever perform that song in public. It's not going to happen, but here it's happening. And it got a really good reception. And, um, 
Brian's like, hmm, people like this song. Maybe they'll like some other material. So the band kind of nudged him into like digging deeper and doing some more Smile stuff. So the next tour, the following year, he pulled out some more Smile songs. Uh, To be fair, there were Smile songs that had actually been released and people went nuts for them. And eventually Brian was actually convinced to put together a concert's worth of Smile material. So he sat down with one of his band members and Van Dyke Parks. He called up Van Dyke Parks and they actually completed Smile and scheduled a tour for London in 2004, which was understandable because in London, Brian could take the stage and just sleep for an hour and the audience would go absolutely crazy for it. He couldn't do anything wrong in London. So that was a good safe space for him to try something like that. So they finished Smile. They put some new lyrics where there weren't lyrics in the first place. They presented it in London. And depending on whom you ask who was there for that first concert, the standing ovation for Smile lasted either five or ten minutes. People went absolutely crazy for it. And when the bootleg audience recordings started circulating, my wife and I listened to the one from that debut concert. And um, we just kind of sat there in silence. And after the smile portion of the concert ended, my wife, just still sitting on the floor, just kind of staring straight ahead, she said, holy All the bad things we thought were going to happen, that Brian would freak out, Brian would uh, cancel the tour or something, none of that happened. The smile tour included the original fire music, not the candle version of fire, but the furious loud fire. And the funny thing about this is there's actually film footage of the first smile concert. And uh, so far, I think the only thing really that came out from it was the fire section of smile, which was called Mrs. O'Leary's cow. And that first performance is out. It was released on DVD, and I think you can find it on YouTube. But it is so funny because at the beginning of the fire music, the very first portion of it, it's just a kind of a little wacky thing with like swirling keyboards and like it sounds kind of like a circus almost. It's kind of the intro to fire. And there's a guy in the band, Darian Sahanaja, who's, um, by the way, he is a member of a group called Wondermints, who many of you have actually heard, and you just don't know it. But Darian is probably the biggest Beach Boys fan in the universe, and he absolutely loves everything Brian Wilson. He loves him both on a musical level and on a personal level. He looked absolutely sick. He looked terrible uh, at the beginning of this fire performance. And they showed his face at the end of the fire intro. He's looking over at Brian, very scared. He exhales, and then he stares straight down at his keyboard when the main portion kicks in. Not looking up, he looks like he's about to throw up. (laughs) And there are shots of the other band members. They're all looking at Brian. They're all looking kind of scared. They're like, okay, is Brian going to freak out now? And then there's one moment when I think it's Bob Lizick, who was his bass player at the time. I think he's his bass player again now. But Bob Lizick suddenly has this look on his face, and he laughs. He laughs. And then another one of his band members laughs, too. And and then the camera cuts to Brian. Brian's just kind of bobbing his head, and he's really getting into the music. And he's singing his vocal part, too. And it's like, oh, my God, Brian's, Brian's okay. The fire music is not freaking him out. He's, he's surviving it. And there was one time when... Uh, I actually 
met Darian and I talked with him for a few minutes and I told him like how it cracks me up, how he just looked like he was going to throw up during the Mrs. O'Leary's cow portion. He said, believe me, it wasn't just that. I felt that way during that entire concert. But yeah, that was probably the most monumental thing ever in the world of the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson when Smile was finished and and put together in a concert. And uh, my wife and I got our chance to see the Smile concert when the U.S. tour happened later that year. We were still living in New Jersey at the time. And the Chicago Smile concert was scheduled for October 2nd, which was pretty significant. My wife said, we're flying to Chicago. We're going to go see that show. Even though there was a Carnegie Hall concert that we could have easily gotten to, which, by the way, we also went to. But uh, we went to the Chicago Smile show, and I noticed that Brian was a lot different from what I was used to seeing. He was energetic. He, was, uh, he wasn't timid at all. He was not shy. He was cracking random jokes. Uh, someone pulled out a camera. He would run over to the front of the stage and pose for a picture. And we're like, okay, who is this guy? He was singing better than ever. Uh, during his bad years, he lost a lot of his singing voice, but a lot of it came back. And he was sounding really, really good that night. So yeah, that night, we October 2nd, we saw Brian Wilson perform Smile in concert in Chicago, my favorite city in the world. And the very next day, I turned 30. And in my opinion, there's no better way, there couldn't possibly have been a better way that I could have ended my 20s than seeing Smile performed in concert. And of course, Brian did release a album of Smile, so that was really cool. He actually finished it. That was something nobody could have ever, ever have seen coming. So that was just absolutely mind-blowing. And of course, he eventually did admit, he's like, yeah, all those times I said that I burnt the uh, smile tapes. Yeah, I, I was lying. I didn't burn any of the smile tapes. And he said that one of the reasons that he didn't want to talk about smile is that he really was upset that he didn't get to finish it. So that's, that's it. Um, and really, that's all I'm going to say right now about that. I'm just going to say that I really do love the music of the Beach Boys with some exceptions. Like there was some stuff they did in the late 70s that was just absolute garbage in my opinion. And their 80s stuff wasn't all that great either. And they had an album in 1992 called Summer in Paradise, which in my opinion is total, total, absolute trash. I paid a dollar for my copy of it and I think I was overcharged by about $18. But um, the remaining Beach Boys, which would have been Brian, Mike Love, Al Jardine, David Marks, and Bruce Johnston, they got together in 2012 and recorded an album. And it was actually a pretty good album. And they went out on tour, and they, they did a surprisingly good show. I, it was a lot better than I was expecting. I was really happy to see them. What else can I say? There's now, there's a, uh, at least for the summer, there's a Sirius XM satellite channel. It's all Beach Boys. And uh, they're really going all out on that channel because they're playing not only Beach Boys stuff, they're playing uh, all the Beach Boys solo stuff. They've, they're playing stuff that Brian Wilson produced for other people. They're playing uh, Beach Boys spin-off groups like Celebration, which is a band that Mike Love formed in the 70s. Uh, they're just playing every... It's like a, a Beach Boys fan's paradise, really, that channel. And uh, it'd be really cool if they kept it permanently, but I really doubt that they will. But um, long story short, I'm a major Brian Wilson fan. I have been for 28 years now, and uh, still going to see Brian Wilson every opportunity I can. Uh, I think the next time I'm going to be able to see him is either November or December, uh, he and his band are going out on tour 
and they're actually going to be performing the Beach Boys Christmas album <laughs> and stuff from the solo Christmas album he did. But um, I, I just wanted to get that out, folks. Uh, thank, thank you for kind of dealing with uh, my overscheduling, my underscheduling, whatever you want to call it. Danny, do you have any hash joints left? I know you do. Okay. You want all of us now? Get a balance. You guys feel any acid yet? I feel great. Let's go. Four. And I realized I talked this long. I went on this long about a band that's not even my favorite. Yet, I haven't even talked about the specific stuff that I truly, truly enjoy. First off, you hear me mention going to Brian Wilson concerts a lot. And yeah, my wife and I have seen him 30 times in concert. And you probably are wondering, okay, but what about the Beach Boys? They're on tour. Well, I saw the Beach Boys in 1996. Uh, It was uh, basically the core band. It was Carl Wilson, Al Jardine, uh, who else? Bruce Johnston, of course, uh, and Mike Love. Brian wasn't... uh, with the band at the time, really. He would make rare once in a while occasional appearances with the group, but uh, it wasn't a regular thing. In fact, one of the reasons I went to that show was that I heard that Brian was in town. At the time, Brian had a second home in St. Charles, Illinois, about 30 miles outside of Chicago, and the, the Beach Boys concert I went to was in Aurora, Illinois, which isn't terribly far from St. Charles, I figured, hmm, this might be a time when Brian decides to join them for a show, or at least maybe come up on stage for an encore or something. So there was uh, somebody on one of the online forums who had an extra ticket for sale, so I I said, hey, I'll take it, and I, I went. And the reason that I didn't go to Beach Boys concerts when I was uh, first a fan was I had heard a lot about their concerts, about how since probably the early 80s, their concerts hadn't changed much. They're basically oldies shows with the same stage banter over and over and over. Basically, if you are a diehard fan and you love uh, the deep cuts, uh, album tracks and everything, you're going to be disappointed. And another thing I knew about was starting probably in the late 80s, there were cheerleaders on stage that served as no other purpose than eye candy. And I just thought that was kind of tasteless. It's like, oh, what, what's this? Just something for Mike Love to ogle or something? But I figured this might be my only chance to possibly see Brian. So I bought the ticket, and I met up with uh, the guy who was selling them. He and his daughter were there. And the show started, and I thought it sounded really, really good. California Girls was the first song. And uh, I, I really liked what I heard. And a few minutes in, the guy I bought the tickets from nudged me. He said, hey, did you notice something? I said, what? He said, no cheerleaders. I said, you're right. This was probably the first time that the Beach Boys had done a concert after dropping the whole cheerleader thing. I was like, oh, this is great. you know. And um, the stories that I heard were true. It was, pretty for, uh, it was a pretty formulaic concert, pretty much just the oldies and uh, the jokes that Mike had been telling for close to 20 years were still the same. But I got to say, though, as a first-timer at a Beach Boys concert, it sounded fresh to my ears. I was like, you know, I'm still having a good time. And I'm really glad I went. Brian didn't show up, but I'm glad I went if for no other reason that I got to hear Carl Wilson sing God Only Knows. And that's pretty much his signature song. And what I didn't know is that would be the only time I'd ever get a chance to hear that from that point on. Because uh, the next year, it was announced that he had uh, he had been diagnosed with lung cancer. 
And I, for whatever reason, I didn't see them when they were in the area the next time. Um, I, I don't remember why. I don't know if there was a reason. And then in uh, February of uh, 1998, Carl died and that I was devastated to hear to hear that he died. I the Wilson family had been telling fans that uh, he had been getting better and uh, he was probably on the road to recovery and all this, but then all of a sudden he's gone and um, I I was really upset personally and uh, because they had given us all this hope that he was getting better. Turned out from uh, what I gather, from what I heard from somebody who knew Carl personally, that apparently he was getting better. But because cancer is such a, such an unpredictable thing, it suddenly took a turn for the worse, and it basically got him really quickly. So, um, yeah, that that was re- that really upset me. And then all I could think was, dear God, if they continue this band, do not let them call it the Beach Boys, because without a Wilson, you are not the Beach Boys. So, of course, I was horrified when I found out that uh, their tour was going to resume under the name The Beach Boys. Which Beach Boys would be present for it? Mike Love, Bruce Johnston, and that's it. So I was really disgusted by that. It's like, come on. You are not The Beach Boys. I don't blame you for touring. Just don't call yourselves The Beach Boys. For that reason, I have never been to a Beach Boys concert since, except in 2012 when all of the remaining core members reunited and did a tour, and it really was great. It was it was a great tour. Uh, it was to promote the album they had just released. Uh, it was called That's Why God Made the Radio, and that album went to number three in the Billboard chart, too. And uh, one of the reasons it didn't go to number one, Adele. <laughs> But to this day, I just, I, I really can't think of going to a show that's a Beach Boys concert. I, I cannot. One thing I have to say, though, is uh, something they did in the years since Carl died was, uh, well, when Brian started doing his solo tours, one of the things that people loved about Brian's solo tours is that his band consisted almost entirely of people who were massive Brian Wilson fans. And they were also extremely talented. And if you went to a Brian Wilson concert, the music you heard was basically a complete reproduction of what went on on the actual record. A typical Beach Boys concert is basically, you know, some guys with guitars and keyboards and they play the correct chords and maybe throw in the guitar solo and that was it. But Brian's band would painstakingly reproduce all the little tiny subtle fragments that fans noticed and things like that. Like it would be like you were hearing the the record being made live in front of you. And I think that the Mike Love and Bruce Johnston people realized that that's what people were really liking. So eventually as various band members left uh, the beach boys touring band, they were replaced with super talented people who are also fans. And they started doing what Brian's band were doing. They were being very, close and accurate to the uh, to the recordings and they were throwing in some uh, fan favorite album cuts and so they're apparently the quality of the mike and bruce shows has really gone up over the years and people have left their shows being very very happy but still i i just cannot bring myself to go to a beach boys concert in which the only beach boys are mike love and bruce johnston And the interesting thing now is that Brian Wilson's current tour, which is billed as a Brian Wilson tour, two of the members of his band now, Al Jardine from the Beach Boys and Blondie Chaplin from the Beach Boys from the (laughs) mid-70s. 
Blondie Chaplin from the band The Flame. Yeah. And so technically, Brian Wilson's solo tour has more Beach Boys than the Beach Boys tour has. So it's it's crazy. It's really crazy. But yeah, I've been to about 30 Brian Wilson shows, and I'm going to continue to go to his shows again because I just feel so lucky that after such a long time thinking that basically resigned to the fact that I would never get to see him, I have these opportunities now. So it's like, yeah, I have to. I owe it to him. I owe it to Brian as a fan, and I owe it to myself. But on to the other good stuff, too. The actual music. You hear me talk about all this stuff, yet I haven't yet talked about my favorite Beach Boys stuff, really. I don't have a single favorite Beach Boys song. It's hard to come down with one of those. I don't really have a single favorite song by anybody. Okay, I take it back. The only single favorite song by anybody that I have is um, Ripple. That is my favorite Grateful Dead song. Anybody else, I can't narrow it down. But I can give you a top 10 favorite songs by the Beach Boys. I have to put Don't Worry Baby on that list quite simply because that's what got me hooked. And nobody, but nobody in his right mind would ever come up with a top 10 favorite Beach Boys songs list without putting California Girls on it, because that song is just a masterpiece. Even if you leave off the vocals, it is a piece of symphonic wonder. It really is. I definitely have to include Surf's Up on the list. And like I said before, the song itself has nothing to do with surfing. It's quite an intricate piece of music. It's got a lot of emotion to it. And over the years, there have been several different versions of Surf's Up released by the Beach Boys and one by Brian Wilson as part of the Smile album. And interestingly, like if I were to actually make a playlist out of this, the version of Surf's Up I would use would actually be a hybrid of two or three different versions that I piece together because there are just so many different versions and each version has something that I absolutely cannot do without. And of course, Till I Die has to be on the list as well. It's it's just too, too deep, too emotional, too important to, to leave off. Now, one song I have to include isn't a Beach Boys song per se, but I think I'm allowed to include it. It's called River Song, and it's from Dennis Wilson's solo album Pacific Ocean Blue from 1977. It's the first song on the album, and it is quite breathtaking. Uh, It's worth purchasing that album just for that one song, trust me. It's quite amazing. Dennis obviously learned a lot from his older brother, just listening to, you can listen to that. Uh, The drummer on the song, by the way, is Ricky Fatar, whom I mentioned before. He's an excellent drummer. He just just kicks major booty on this one with his uh, drumming. And also, Dennis used the Double Rock Baptist Choir on the song, and they sound phenomenal on it. And the reason that I say it's allowed on a Beach Boys list, even though it's a Dennis Wilson solo song, is, first of all, Carl Wilson co-wrote it with him, and he you can actually hear his voice uh, in the vocal harmonies, even though he's not credited as a uh, performer. And River Song was also included on an album called Ten Years of Harmony, which came out in 1981. It was a two-disc best-of compilation that Caribou Records put out that highlights basically the best of their output from 1970 to 1980 and they included river song on that album so that was pretty interesting so that's what let's see one two three four five i think so i would have to say a sixth song that i will include 
It's from the Surf's Up album, so this makes three Surf's Up songs that I'm including, and it's called Feel Flows. It was uh, written by Carl Wilson, and I think it was almost entirely performed by him, too. I think the only musicians on that song were Carl Wilson and his uh, first wife, Annie, and uh, Charles Lloyd, who played uh, saxophone and flutes and other woodwinds on Beach Boys recordings and in concerts, and I think one other person, and just a lot of overdubs, and uh, and I just love how that song sounds. Uh, it's It's got kind of this ethereal, dreamy effect to it, and uh, it was used in the movie Almost Famous. It's uh, during the closing credits, and there's also a little bit of it used kind of in the middle of the movie somewhere, too. It's a wonderful song, and it just shows that uh, if Brian wasn't available to write songs, that... Uh, the other guys can step forward and uh, come up with some good songs too, and I think this is Carl's best song, and he has a really killer guitar solo in it too. Let's see, song number seven. These are in no particular order necessarily, but uh, song number seven in my best, my top ten. This is, by the way, right now. If you were to ask me, say, in a week, I might have a different top ten list. But number seven so far, it's a song called "I'll Betty's Nice." The sound of it and the production of it is kind of bizarre. But it's from uh, 1977. It's uh, written entirely by Brian. The vocals kind of trade off between Dennis and Brian. They both sound really, really raspy. And then Carl, with his, as usual, gorgeous voice, comes in and uh, sings a nice bridge to it. If you listen to this song and you can't stand the sound of it, which a lot of people can't, but if you strip it away and just pay attention to the song itself, it is a gorgeous song. And... If I could write something like that, I would be probably the happiest guy on the face of the earth. It's just so beautiful. And uh, number eight in my top ten list, Soulful Old Man Sunshine, which was recorded, I think, in 1969 and never released until 1998. And uh, interestingly, 1998 is the year that Carl Wilson died, as I mentioned before. And is there a connection? Well, there quite possibly could, because there have been numerous times when Soulful Old Man Sunshine was slated to be on some kind of archival release. It was going to be on the Good Vibrations box set, but it was next. And the story I heard is that Carl always stepped in the way of it getting released, because he, he didn't think it was a good performance. It is seriously one of the most amazing songs in their whole catalog. It came out on this compilation called Endless Harmony, and it was supposed to be a soundtrack to uh, the documentary that would eventually come out of the same name. And yeah, if you see the documentary, Soulful Old Man Sunshine is used in that documentary. Endless Harmony was a huge deal to Beach Boys fans because it was almost entirely unreleased music. Nobody had heard Soulful Old Man Sunshine, so we had no idea what that was going to be about, and it's one of the first tracks in the CD. I remember when I went to Best Buy to get the CD, I had a uh, CD to cassette adapter for the car. I popped the CD in. I remember driving through the Best Buy parking lot and trying to leave, and just the opening notes of Soulful Old Man Sunshine just totally blew me away. I had to hit back during the intro just so I could hear it again, and it just blew my mind. Number nine, the Beach Boys put out an album in 1973 called The Beach Boys in Concert. It was a two-record set, and it was uh, a retrospective of uh, their tours from uh, 1972 and 1973. And I love that album. It's a really great representative of their concerts. Uh, that was when they were working under a manager named Jack Riley, and he did a lot to basically make the Beach Boys cool again. 
And one of the things he did was he made their concerts extra long. He's like, guys, you should do like long concerts, like do a two hour concert and uh, throw in some album tracks that might be FM radio friendly. Still do your hits, but you know, do some of that and make sure you throw in some stuff from your new album and all that. And there are some great tracks on that. That was one of those 70s albums I couldn't get on CD. <laughs> but when I finally tracked it down, I remember when I first got the CD, I didn't look at the track list at all, but I popped it in and listened to it with my eyes closed and with headphones and just sat back and took it all in. And what I heard was what would be my ideal Beach Boys concert from start to finish. The only problem is it didn't have God Only Knows. And apparently the Beach Boys didn't really do God Only Knows in concert in 1972, was it? Maybe 73? But instead, after the concert was over, there'd be, I think, the London Symphony Orchestra's version of God Only Knows playing over the venue's PA system. But the track that I'm picking from that album is called Funky Pretty. It's a song from the Holland album, and it's written by Brian and a few other people. The studio version is kind of clunky and bizarre, but the concert version just really kicks so much butt it really does and actually when you start hearing it you think wait a minute are they doing papa was a rolling stone <laughs> but it's got some really killer drumming from ricky fatar great vocal from carl and al and uh just everything you'd ever want for it's it was like perfect for early 70s fm radio kind of album oriented rock and it sounded wonderful and uh, anyway, moving on, the uh, final in my top 10 uh, Beach Boys songs is a song called Forever. If you're not a Beach Boys fan, you might still be familiar with the song Forever, but I'm going to tell you this, folks, and I want you to get this through your heads and don't ever let it leave your heads. It is not a Jesse and the Rippers song. In fact, I really do hope that when it's time for John Stamos to go, that the first person he sees on the other side is Dennis Wilson, ready to deck him for doing to that song what he did to that song. If you have heard Forever, and the only version you are familiar with is the version by Jesse and the Rippers, which also ended up, by the way, in the Beach Boys' Summer in Paradise album, also known as Bummer in Paradise, by the way, then you need to get yourself over to YouTube right now and listen to the Beach Boys' version of Forever. It is so freaking divine, and it is a classic example of Dennis Wilson's songwriting. His typical songwriting was very heart on his sleeve, and the music shows it, the lyrics show it, and it's just total divinity. It absolutely is. And from what people who knew Dennis will tell you, that was the real Dennis Wilson, just someone who always wore his heart on his sleeve, just the most caring guy in the world. The problem is, when the drugs got the best of him, he wasn't quite that guy. Like, when he was sober, you would just, you'd never know a more generous, a, a more true friend than Dennis Wilson. And that, and forever, kind of really shows what he was all about. And it's just a beautiful song, too. As for Beach Boys albums, uh, obviously I love Pet Sounds, and I'm not going to go on about it. I'd say, besides Pet Sounds, personally, I think the Beach Boys' best album as a group, one that's not necessarily dominated by Brian Wilson, although he is very present on it, it's uh, Sunflower from 1970. I love the album. The songs on it are top-notch. The production is amazing. I think it's the first time they recorded an album in 16 tracks. 
and they use those 16 tracks very well. The vocals are layered amazingly. The, the musicianship is top-notch on it. Uh, it's got a lot of good songs on it. Every Beach Boy has pretty significant artistic contributions to it. There are a lot of really good Dennis Wilson songs on it, a lot of good Brian Wilson songs on it, some amazing Carl vocals on it. And, and seriously, Sunflower is wonderful. It really is. So that's number two on my top five albums. Uh, not necessarily in any order, again. Uh, number three, I'd have to say The Beach Boys Love You has to make my top five. And The Beach Boys Love You is from 1977. It's a really weird album. It's got 14 songs on it, with almost exclusively 100% written by Brian Wilson with maybe two songs with co-writers on them. The songs on the album were primarily written while Brian was under the care of Eugene Landy the first time. A lot of the songs were basically his rehab exercises. Gene would tell him, okay, just sit down and write a simple song. Could be about uh, anything you want, something simple, something you do every day. Uh, some observations you've made, like there's a song called Solar System, which might just simply be based on him looking up at the sky. There's a song called Johnny Carson, which is, I guess, because Brian watched The Tonight Show a lot. <laughs> And the songs are very quirky and very bizarre. The album consists primarily of synthesizer and drum machine. And uh, actually, a lot of people refer to the synthesizer sound as a farty synthesizer. <laughs> and uh, a friend of mine, uh, when I made a comment about the, uh, the farting synthesizers on uh, The Beach Boys Love You, she said, well, at least synthesized farts are better than real ones. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, oh, true story. Some... A few years ago, there was a, just a random group of people in England got together and performed the entire album in a little mini concert, and they called themselves the Farty Synths. <laughs> but the thing about the Beach Boys Love You is, if you're a Beach Boys fan, you either love the album or you hate it. There is no middle ground. Reasons you would hate it? Well, because it's such a bizarre little album. And uh, if you knew the background behind the recording of the album, how it was, it just seemed that it was something that uh, they were trying to force out of Brian just to get Brian's name on something and get Beach Boys product out really soon. And that might cause you to not like the album. I think that's one of the reasons my wife can't listen to that album. <laughs> but then you got people like me who listen to it and they think it's fun as anything, that it's just one of the most fun albums to listen to. And it really is. And the way I see it is uh, the songs on the Beach Boys Love You. You are never, ever going to get a more honest, direct look into Brian Wilson than you will with the Beach Boys Love You. The songs on there are pure Brian at his most honest, at his most straightforward. And it's really something. Let's see, number four on my top five list, it's an album called Friends, and it came out in 1968. If you're not a Beach Boys fan, you will have heard of none of the songs on it at all. But it's a fairly short album. It was recorded, I, be I believe it was recorded at Brian Wilson's home studio, actually. But uh, the thing about Friends is that all the songs on it are very, very mellow. And there's kind of a relaxing, therapeutic feel if you really listen to the album. It's just quite beautiful. It really is. Most of the songs are by Brian. I think there are a couple of Dennis songs on it as well. But it's quite relaxing. And the thing that truly does it for me, the final song on the album, it's called Transcendental Meditation, because that was when the Beach Boys were really starting to get into that stuff. 
And transcendental meditation, the practice itself, is a very peaceful practice. You sit in your favorite chair and you repeat a mantra to yourself and it helps alleviate a lot of stress. It helps make, uh, like if you're going through a sickness, it helps the symptoms be a little bit more uh, livable and things like that. And basically you have to pay somebody a butt ton of money to learn how to do it. <laughs> but uh, this peaceful practice is represented in a song called Transcendental Meditation, which is the most loudest, raucous, like jazzy thing you could ever hear. And it's a big jarring conclusion to an album that is otherwise relaxing and mellow. And people hate it for that. People hate the song for that. Well, personally, I think it's freaking brilliant. I think it's one of the most brilliant things Brian Wilson ever did. I was like, oh man. And I love it to this. I, I, I love it so much just for that. And of course, I think I really need uh, in my top five Beach Boys albums, I think I have to include Holland because it's just such a great album start to finish. And uh, it's got uh, Sail on Sailor in it, which a lot of you might know and not realize it. It's got that. There's a three-piece suite on it called California Saga. And of course, you know, the Beach Boys are all about California, except uh, this, this piece of music is actually more about Northern California for a change. And in fact, I think Al Jardine's primary residence, or maybe exclusive residence, is in like Big Sur or something. I'm not 100% sure about that, but... California Saga is a great piece of music. You got a couple of uh, a couple of great songs from uh, Dennis Wilson on it. He doesn't really sing lead on the songs he wrote. Carl sings them both, but they're both great songs. Carl has a song on there called "The Traitor," that's uh, pretty cool. Um, and uh, something else about Holland is that it comes with a uh, the original pressing came with a EP. And if you don't know what an EP is, it's a seven-inch record. It's like a single except it plays back at 33 and a third revolutions per minute. A typical EP would have two songs per side, but the uh, the EP that came with uh, Holland was called Mount Vernon and Fairway, and it was a fairy tale that Brian had written, and he provides the voice of a character called the Pied Piper. Sounds kind of like Cartman from South Park, actually. Hello, I'm the Pied Piper from the faraway land of night. Nobody knows anything about my existence. And the narrator is their manager, Jack Riley. And it's a story about a couple of kids who find this magic transistor radio and uh, and it provides them with uh, a lot of uh, sorely desired fun. <laughs> and um, the thing about Mount Vernon Fairway is if you really listen to it, you realize that it's actually quite a sad, tragic little story because in reality, it seems to be that Brian is calling out for help, that he's feeling kind of lost and lonely and that he's going nowhere. and. Uh, it's kind of a sad listen, but man, the rest of the album, though, is so killer. I had to be very careful with my choices here because, it would, in fact, I got to tell this story. Recently, Tim Evans from uh, Super Podcast Brothers messaged me over Facebook. He said, hey, uh, can you recommend a couple of Brian Wilson albums for me? And, I, and, uh, and in case you have that same question, what are some good Brian Wilson albums? Of course, the first thing I'm going to tell you is Smile. I'm going to tell you right away, listen to Smile. It's quite amazing. And a lot of fans don't consider that a Brian Wilson album because it's basically just a solo remaking of an unfinished Beach Boys album. Nonetheless, it's wonderful, it's amazing. And uh, by the way, by the way, if you're familiar with Pancreas by Weird Al Yankovic out of, off of his Straight Outta Linwood album from 2006, that's basically Brian's Smile album in one song <laughs> uh, with a little bit of Godly Nose thrown in as well. So. Uh, 
And that's also why Brian and Melinda Wilson are thanked in the credits in that album. But Smile is my favorite of his solo albums. The other one that I have to recommend is uh, the follow-up he did to Smile called That Lucky Old Son. And uh, the thing about That Lucky Old Son is uh, when Brian and his band go out on tour in Europe, their usual London place to perform is uh, Royal Festival Hall. I think Brian considers it his home away from home. They love playing there. The audience reactions they get are always amazing there. And uh, I think it was uh, in, uh, sometime in 2006, they closed down the Royal Festival Hall Theater for renovation. And the people in charge commissioned Brian to write a new piece of music to reopen Royal Festival Hall with. So he came up with uh, That Lucky Old Son. And it's this piece based around an old louis armstrong song called that lucky old son in the end what it turns out to be is basically a tribute to los angeles and hollywood and people's idealistic view of los angeles and what a wonderful place it is uh, i gotta tell you folks you know first of all i i loved i loved that lucky old son since i first heard it i thought it was just absolutely beautiful and brilliant and, and by the way one of his collaborators on that project van dyke parks from smile <laughs> But That Lucky Old Son, it's just got some great tunes on it. And, well, I went to Los Angeles for the first time two years ago. I didn't think I would like L.A. because I heard that it's kind of a trashy place and kind of filthy. My wife had told me that she had been to L.A. before, and she said, you'll probably like New York better, and I don't like New York. But, but the thing is, I wanted to go to L.A. sometime in my life just so I can say that I've done it, so I've seen it. So we went to Hollywood in 2016. Part of the reason was because Brian was doing a solo concert at the Hollywood Bowl. And so we spent a few days in Hollywood. And I got to tell you, I absolutely loved every second of it. It was, I, I fell in love with the place. And I can't wait to go back. Um, I, I really can't wait to go back to LA and check it out. We did so much there. The Hollywood Bowl is my favorite music venue that I've ever been to. And all I could think was, good God, Brian absolutely nailed L.A. This is exactly what that lucky old son told me it was going to be about. And really, it's it's great. It's not. It's nowhere I'd ever want to live. Uh, I can't really imagine being there for more than a few days without thinking, okay, let's go home. But I, I really can't wait to go back. Um, I'm going to see if there's any way I can sneak in a little side trip there <laughs> during our little California adventure. I doubt we will, but hey, wouldn't hurt to try to figure it out but hey that's uh some of my favorite beach boys stuff right there container take one uh brian would you put a loud count on it for us please louder if you did manage to listen to this episode i really do appreciate it thank you so much i know this was nowhere near anything atari related uh oh actually there is one thing that does kind of bring it a little bit on topic is that 1978 during a pretty bad time in the Beach Boys' career, Brian Wilson, Mike Love, and Al Jardine flew out to Fairfield, Iowa, to the Maharishi International University to record a Beach Boys album there. Dennis Wilson wanted nothing to do with it, and uh, I think Carl Wilson had his own issues with uh, doing it there. The resulting album, by the way, is pretty bad uh the stuff that was recorded at the university was pretty mediocre and the filler material that filled the rest of the album 
some of it was just plain offensive. There's a song called Hey Little Tomboy, which is... Uh, you can imagine Brian Wilson at the time, who was fat and hairy and apparently not really taking good care of himself hygienically at the time, writing a song about this girl who uh, they're trying to convince to no longer be a tomboy and uh, oh god it's so disturbing uh, the music is very lovely I gotta say but the lyrics are just oh they're offensive so bad <laughs> but anyway the thing about the Maharishi International University it's Al Jardine and Mike Love were and still are to this day major practitioners of transcendental meditation and where is Fairfield Iowa it's just outside of Otumwa, Iowa. And yes, there absolutely is a connection between the two. <laughs> and if you recognize the name Otumwa, Iowa, and you're like, wait a minute, is there a connection? The answer is yes. Yes, there is. But having said that, uh, one of the reasons that I did this particular off-topic episode is that when I was first considering doing a podcast, I had wanted to do a Beach Boys podcast because there weren't any around. There are plenty of Beatles podcasts. And, and actually it's kind of the reason that when I was in college, I did a Beach Boys radio show because there were plenty of like breakfast with the Beatles type shows, but no Beach Boys shows. So when it came time at the college radio stations for uh, our general manager to come up to uh, read proposals for specialty shows, I proposed, Hey, why not a Beach Boys show? And it was approved. And not only that, but I won an award for specialty show of the year that year. And I got surprisingly a lot of calls from people who are asking for the most obscure Beach Boys music. And turns out I had it on file so I could play it. <laughs> but regardless, the reason that I, I did this particular burnout episode was I had wanted to do a Beach Boys podcast. But right around the time I was doing the planning for that, my friend Jim had said, hey, I want to do an arcade podcast. I, I'd like you to join me. And I was like, well, someone invites me. I'll be happy to accept. So there we go. And that's how Pie Factory started. So I didn't really have time to continue with my plans for the Beach Boys podcast. I was trying to line up co-hosts and everything, and I just never got around to doing it. Well, now there is a really, really good Beach Boys podcast. It's called Sail On, and it's hosted by a couple of guys from Nashville who actually have a Beach Boys tribute band. And uh, they, ha they have a Beach Boys tribute band, and they're in another band that's not a Beach Boys band, but kind of a, I guess, a power pop band. But if uh, you're interested in the Beach Boys at all, give Sail on a listen. I'll put a link to their podcast in the show notes. And also, that's kind of one of the reasons I'm going to be doing Autobiography of a Schnook. Like I said before, every episode of Autobiography of a Schnook will actually have a segment on music. Because I realized, if I just limit myself to just Beach Boys, I'm really being unfairly strict with myself, because I love so much music at this point in my life that I just cannot limit myself. So that's kind of going to allow me to be a little bit more freeform, as it were. But again, I thank you all for giving me a chance to just let it out here for a brief moment. And speaking of thanks, I owe the following a thank you for sponsoring this podcast monetarily. Thank you, Air Shack and Ed Ladden Controllers and Kyle Edder and Jimmy G and Great Offender, Richard Grounds and New Balance Phoenix Stores, PJ Steele and Richard Valdez. Thank you all so much. If you would like to get in on this and uh, support this podcast financially by donating a dollar or several hundred dollars a month, <laughs> you can go to patreon.com homebrew78 on the web and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. 
You can send me an email at homebrew78 at fab4it.com, and fab4it is spelled F-A-B, and then four on your numeric keypad if you have one, it.com. The show notes are always going to be located at homebrew78.fab4it.com on the web. The Twitter handle is homebrew78, and the YouTube channel is homebrew7800. Uh, we're going to return to normalcy, uh, if you can ever think of me as being normal, uh, with the next episode, which will be covering Serpentine. And by the time that episode's out, Serpentine might actually be available for sale in the Atari Age store. So, hey, maybe you'll be interested in uh, picking that up in the Atari Age store because you will support a hardworking homebrew developer. So please give those people the support they deserve. Talk to you again with episode number 42 when I'm back home from California. Bye-bye.